I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man. War is society's dirty work, usually done by kids, cleaning up failures perpetuated by adults. Carl Marlantis, author of Matterhorn and What It's Like to Go to War. This is Iron Mike Stedman. And you're listening to Confessions of a Native Son, a black veteran's perspectives on race, culture, and business. Earlier this year, I came across a fellow Marine infantry officer and English professor at the United States Naval Academy named Thomas Schumann. A couple people within my network reached out to me and encouraged me to connect with Tom regarding his efforts around Patrol Base Abate, a nonprofit organization named after fallen Marine Sergeant Matthew Abate that connects veterans and builds communities through retreats, local chapters, and online clubs. I later found out that Tom was a platoon commander with 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, an infantry battalion that took an enormous amount of casualties during their deployment to Sangin, Afghanistan in 2010. Before my own deployment to Afghanistan in January of 2012, I remember reading the reports coming out of Sangin and the hell that 3-5 faced. In all my years as a Marine, I've only talked with one 3-5 Marine who served during that deployment, until now. I decided to reach out to Tom to be a guest on this podcast as an opportunity to learn more about him, Patrol Base Abate, and discuss the literary tradition of military veterans and the importance of capturing our stories in our own words. Once we got to talking, however, our discussion quickly turned to 3-5 and the realities of combat. One of the powers of podcasting is the ability to engage in deep and personal conversations while simultaneously capturing the oral history of our guest. War is hell, and Tom gives you a glimpse into it through his deployment and dealing with the loss of Marines in combat. This is one of those episodes where it's hard to describe, so I just want to encourage you to listen as two Marines engage in a conversation about war, literature, and our responsibility to bear witness as Americans and combat veterans. This episode of Confessions of a Native Son is brought to you by my organization, Ironbound Boxing, a nonprofit based in Newark, New Jersey, that provides amateur boxing training, entrepreneur education, and employment opportunities to Newark youth and young adults. To support the cause, you can visit our website, ironboundboxing.org, and make a donation today. I'd also like to acknowledge Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. You can learn more by visiting www.realdope.coffee. As always, I appreciate you for sharing your time with me, and I hope you enjoy the following episode. Tom, what's going on, brother? How you doing? I appreciate you for making time to come on the podcast. I reached out to Tom on LinkedIn, and one of the reasons I did it was because, you know, I have a buddy of mine and one of my donors at Iron Brown Boxing named Craig Schaefer. He's a football player. And he's always been um, like super supportive. And Tom and uh, I think some of your friends put together Patrol Base Abate, correct? 
Abate, sorry. And uh, that was how I first came across you. And I started looking you up. And then I saw that you were teaching English at the Naval Academy. I'm working on my writing. And so I've just been following you from afar for a little bit. And I was like, you know what? Let me reach out to him because I feel like platforms like these are the best way to actually just get to know each other and like have really like intimate conversations that are a lot more difficult to have when it's just like, hey, man, you know, shooting texts back and forth or even run into each other at a bar or something. Yeah, undoubtedly, this gives us a real opportunity to have to hear each other, uh, whereas most other mediums, I think, don't permit such a free exchange of ideas. And uh, we actually get to see each other's face and hear each other's tone and inflections. And so uh, I do think this is uh, it's the way to do it. One of the things I'd love to do is uh, I would love for you to go ahead and introduce yourself to all our listeners. Yeah, I'm not big on introductions. Uh, I like to say uh, I'm Tom, um, an infantry marine and, and a dad. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, we can go from there. Uh, you know, uh, to me, my 14 years in the Marine Corps, the, the, the interesting part about my Marine Corps career isn't me. It's uh, the Marines that I've served with, you know, and uh, – uh, but yeah, South side of Chicago grew up, uh, went to, went to school and then, uh, became a Marine officer in 2008 infantry guy, JTAC, um, school of infantry company commander, uh, taught at the Naval Academy and now I'm at the Naval War College as a student. What are, what do you enjoy doing outside of work? Uh, hanging out with my kids, uh, reading, writing hiking. That's it. I, you know, I'm not like a cool hobbies guy. Like a lot of people have like cool, expensive hobbies or, you know, I, I'm, uh, I like to walk around outside, uh, which complements my line of work. And I like to read and write. And that's really, uh, it's as sexy as it's going to get. Um, so, yeah, that I mean, pretty pretty boring overall, I, I would say. But I don't know, and it's it's actually never a boring day when my daughter's three years old, and it's I'm never bored actually. So I'm always entertained by her and having a great time. So, well, one of the reasons I reached out to you for this pod too is because you know to talk about the sure. literary tradition, you know, and I I'm a big fan of reading and writing and even podcasting now, and I'm writing a book called Confessions of a Native Son which is a namesake to this podcast, which is going to be 10 essays on race, culture, and business by yours truly. And, you know, it's funny when there was always this, I remember when we went to IOC, right? They were like, don't write a book. Don't be like yeah. Nathaniel Fick. And I remember them saying like that, that yeah. mother effort, you know, yeah. don't be like him. And then you see the seals, sure. right? And you see seals publishing sure. books every week, right? Like it's the new cool. But I'll tell you, man, um, after deploying to Afghanistan, right? And, you know, we have these kind of, like, experiences in our lives, these shared experiences. But when you come away from that deployment, all those guys go to separate ends of the universe. And it becomes, like, the only people that remember what happened is the people you were there with. And if no one documents that experience, right, it's almost as if it doesn't exist, you know? And so that's when it was really, like, profound to me of, like, man, that's why books and stuff matter. 
And at the end of the day, you can judge people all you want. And I do think there's a balance, right? I think the way the SEALs do it for self-promotion is I'm not the biggest fan of, but in a sense of preserving people's legacy, you know, and, and having that as like a reference point for people, I think that's super powerful. And so it's made me appreciate the literary tradition from like the military perspective and even more so, you know, even in my own life. Yeah, there's a great uh, quote in the things that carried by O'Brien. Uh, you know, you said if these things aren't written down, it's almost like that, that didn't happen. And at the end of the book, um, it's it's O'Brien's kind of having these flashbacks to his childhood. And he's talking to this girl and, and she's dead. And she, uh, you know, she's this little girl got ch- some kind of cancer. And he says, you know, what's it like to be dead? And she goes, it's almost like uh, being in a book that no one's reading, you know? And so um, it's, it is important that uh, it's, you know, how do we know about Achilles? You know, how do we know uh, about uh, Odysseus? You know, even if they're fictional characters, right? It's, it's, it's through literature is, is, is kind of what gives you longevity and, and it's how we know about, legends and uh it's it is important to get it in, into writing you know one of the things we do on this platform is everybody's got to give their confession right and again you give your confession about anything you're feeling on your heart and on your mind and then after that we're going to do continue our uh, conversation on talking about the literary tradition and some more about your background and so i'll go first Send it. all right one of my top five favorite books and it actually might be number one is Carl Marlantis Matterhorn. And I don't know if you've read that book, um, historical fiction, right? But one of my biggest regrets, my confession is, when I was a young second lieutenant, boot, straight out the Naval Academy, Carl Marlantis was at the PX on Quantico, right? And he was there, you know, doing autographed copies of his book. And his book had just come out, right? And I remember this woman was there with him and she saw me as a lieutenant. She's like, oh, you should come meet so-and-so. You should really get this book. You know, it's a great book about the Vietnam War, et cetera. And me being busy, little B, second time, I was like, I ain't got it. I'm good. Thank you, but no thank you. Then I had a buddy named Tom Payne. And he's like, you need to read this book. And when I was in Afghanistan on deployment, right, I read Matterhorn and it blew my socks off, Right. And if I'm being honest, that book is one of the reasons I chose to pursue the life I do today with boxing, because I remember reading that book. And even though it was historical fiction, the fact that like I had never read about the infantry experience, everything from like the company commanders to platoon life and all of that. Right. And to have that in a book that kind of felt like it expressed our lifestyle and what it was like being an infantry officer. And I felt like. The Marines in the 70s were facing the same thing I was dealing with as a platoon commander in Afghanistan, you know, and that was when the epiphany went off in my mind that this is never going to change, right? That the machine is the machine. And so I read that book. I read another book called My View from the Corner by Angelo Dundee. And that was when I made the decision that I was going to get out of the Marine Corps, you know, after five years. But my confession, my one of my regrets is that I've, I love Matterhorn, right? Like, it's one of my top five books of all time. Like, I listened to it on audio twice. First time I listened to it on audio, it made me cry, if I'm being honest. And I regret that I didn't, you know, I didn't interact with him at that time, you know? 
yeah, that was definitely a boot mistake. Um, you know, and, and, and that's why there's, in, I'm an honorary Naval Academy graduate now, class of 21, you're a Naval Academy grad, right? And so I give lots of talks and when, and I, I mean, I give this talk a lot at the Naval Academy as well, but when I would, when I talk to like an ROTC unit, what do they always want to know? Like what, what is, what's different about us than the, the Academy? And we can slam dunk on the faults of the Naval Academy all day. It's easy, right? But there's 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 some things the Academy does well. And one thing that the Academy does is it, pres- it provides incredible opportunities of engagement with people with experience. Medal of Honor, astronauts, top of the field scientists, you name it, historians. Uh, these folks come through with regularity. It'll be a Tuesday morning and you'll have a Medal of Honor recipient talking about combat leadership over at Alumni Hall with eight people sitting there. And it's like, you know, uh, and it's it's these it, the midshipmen, it's like, oh, well, I, I, they, you've got that little uh, study time or whatever break after lunch that everyone just naps, you know? And so it's like, what am I going to do? Am I going to go listen to the Medal of Honor recipient or I got a 30 minute? Nah, it's like, oh, alumni hall. I'm in eighth wing. That's kind of far. Nah, like I'll pass on the Medal of Honor recipient talking about combat leadership. Uh, Who's that? Who's the Navy SEAL astronaut medical doctor? You know, you've got that guy over at the Naval Academy talking all the time. It's like, oh, a guy who's with the Harvard MD, became an astronaut, and it's a Navy SEAL. Oh, man. He probably knows a little bit about uh, this nap, you know? And so it's like, it's, it's you know, the, the, the mids quite often fail to take advantage of one of the strengths of the Naval Academy, which is bringing in incredible uh, resources. And so that was a little bit of the midshipman in you, maybe, uh, still uh, lingering. Um, but uh, Matterhorn is a text that I teach. Um, it's a text that I studied from an academic perspective while I was at Georgetown. And then it's a text that I taught for my two years at the I, I, Naval Academy. I taught um, a course called Literature of War. It was an elective. And I focused that elective on Vietnam literature and we read Matterhorn. And then I, I actually designed my own course called Reimagining Vietnam. And again, uh, Matterhorn was one of the texts. And so I'll send you some links. I, I do some close readings of Matterhorn where I kind of unpack and do some uh, textual analysis. Um, and I I actually had Carl Melantis guest lecture a couple times during my classes. And so uh, I've got those recorded. And so I'll, I'll shoot them your way. But, you know, uh, it's my favorite book. Um, I, I, I could teach it the entire semester, you know, I, it's uh, very, and, and why it's the same reason. It's because I can see myself as, as Mellis. I can, I, my war is, it's all the same. Right. And so there's so much to identify with in that novel that it, obviously it's, it's incredibly written, but when there's a lot of, when you can see yourself in the text, it, uh, you know, uh, so yeah, uh, really happy to talk about Madhorn. Um, my confession, I, I was hoping to have maybe not like a military one, but I, I just, I just, 
because I, I I think uh, it's a little bit boring. I, you, you don't have to. I don't have to. I'm, I'm, I but I was, but because uh, it's actually I'm primed um, because I before we got on this call, I just I just did some writing for a, a post that I'm going to put up tonight on Instagram, and uh, today is is October 18th, right? And so today was the biggest firefight I, I was ever in October 18th, 2010 U shape ambush. The entire world was exploding around me. And, um, we had inserted, I inserted a squad under the cover of darkness along this canal deep into bad guy territory. And then I took a squad and I ran the rabbit with that squad trying to get I wanted to run up into the uh, engagement area, then like hook right. And so that hopefully the enemy would trail me, follow me through the, the, the Marines who had been laid in that ambush. So it took hours to get up to them because we were decisively engaged because we were heading into the baddest bad guy territory. And so the Taliban did not like us up in that area. So the whole time we're fighting them. Finally, we get to the engagement area. I hook through the engagement area thinking the Taliban is going to follow us. Like they've been following us all day. I get in, I tie in on the flank of the, the squad that's been laying, laying there waiting. And by that time, it's like one o'clock in the afternoon and the Taliban's like, it's lunch and siesta time, you know? So they take a lunch, take a nap and we're, we're waiting like a couple hours. And finally I'm like, uh, you know, bummed out. All right, let's RTB. So I call higher and I said, this is Sledgehammer 1 Actual. I'm breaking down our ambush. We're RTB. You got to call on a pod drop every 30 minutes. 30 minutes later, we're a couple hundred meters from the patrol base. Call on another pod drop. Say, just so you be advised, you know, we're here's the pod drop. Uh, we're about 100 meters from reentering the patrol base. And I'm out there with two squads and, and I get a call from the company commander. It's like, Hey, we're we're watching on Scan Eagle the the ISR right. They're, the enemy is right in your engagement area, just like you predicted. Why aren't you shooting them? I'm like, because I'm not there anymore. I'm almost back in the base, and they're like, well, you need to fire. I'm like, I'm not there. And so you know, the company commander, whatever watch officer was in the COC did not do a good job of relaying that we had broken down that position, did not update the battle board or whatever. So they come in, they see on the, the TV screen, a bunch of Taliban with machine guns and rockets and mortars. And they're like, this is perfect. They're right where you wanted them. Like engage, engage. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. We're not there. And they're like, we'll go back. I'm like, if we go back, they're going to lay where we were and just ambush us. And, uh, and I fight and I was not like tactful about it. I was like, this is a terrible mission. We should not go back. If we go back, we're going to take cash cheese. Uh, and they're like, you're going back. And I was like, okay. So literally looking at the post, I could see the post from where we're at. And I told, I told the Marines, I said, Hey, uh, anybody who wants to go back and go back, I need seven people to stay out with me because you need eight people out to be on a patrol. A little bit 
false bravado or whatever, because I know my Marines aren't, you know, they immediately say like, sir, we're not leaving you. There's also like a good lesson in this and that, that my platoon sergeant, um, who we call black Jesus because he been wounded twice and came back both times when everyone thought he would never make it back. Sassar Henley, this guy was the chillest, low key chill. He was a perfect compliment to me because I'm a, I'm not like, I'm not loud, but I'm very aggressive. And he's just, um, and I had, I had fired a platoon sergeant who only had one skill set, which was yelling. Uh, and so this guy was just the most, it would, it did not matter what you said. He'd just be like, Roger that, sir. And just get it done. Roger that, sir. And like, he didn't have to say, yell at the Marines because he, he was a squad leader, a fan of fury with kilo three, five had been shot. I mean, and because he, he did everything that the Marines were doing, you know, he never, so like he just had all the credibility, you know, so he doesn't have to yell. He doesn't have to get upset. He just, it, it, the Marines respected him so much that they would do whatever. And so this was the only time in our almost year and a half that we worked together that he was like, raised his voice and he's like, sir, this is fucking bullshit. Da, da, da. And like, he had my attention, right? Because he's a guy who never lost his cool. And that's an important lesson that I try to tell junior officers because there's, they're young and they're emotional. And I mean, we're all been emotional, right? And they get, they want to die in every hill. And I'd say, you know, you got to pick and choose your battles for the ones that really are going to count for something. And that's usually on behalf of a junior Marine who doesn't have the, the, the platform or the voice. And they need your voice here because they're something serious, some kind of serious consequence, save it for that. Otherwise, you, you know, you're going to be the boy who cried wolf. And every time you're upset about it, you become tuned out. Right. And so the fact that he said that this day, right, he's got my very undivided attention and I'm taking it very seriously. But at the end of the day, it's a lawful order. It's a bad one. And it's one that I know is going to cause casualties. Uh, and so my confession is, you know, I, I debated what I, my confession is probably that I didn't debate enough, actually, that I just was like, it's an order and I have to follow the order. And so we went back up the canal and uh, we, the IEDs were so heavy and singing that really the only corridor that we could, we had to move inside the water in the canal because that's the only place we knew there weren't IEDs. So when you talk about canalized terrain, there's nothing more canalized than a canal, right? And so like we go and they were on three sides of us, inflating fire down the canal, mortaring us, RPGs, it was everything around us was just exploding. Within the first five seconds, got a Marine shot. Corman can't get to him because so much fire. I mean, just absolute shit show. Due to some incredible heroism of machine gunners, docs, junior Marines, we fight our way out of that. Uh, and go back to base. Um, and so my confession is, is I, why did I lack the moral courage to do something differently? 
and I'm in this dilemma that, you know, think about uh, the guys at Storm Normandy or the guys that these were all officers following an, a, a direct order that was going to get people killed. And they knew that and they complied. And I think that's that that they made the right decision to, you know, storm the beach and, you know, climb the cliffs. And so then I think, well, this is this was your order to go get. And, and I just wonder, uh, is what could I done differently, and and should I have not complied? Should I have done X number of kind of different things? Uh, and thank God uh, we only had some rain shot, and and everybody lived um, because I made the wrong choice and I've got Marines killed and those ones uh, are the ones that will keep you up. Those are the ones that their IEDs themselves, when you go back near those decisions, they'll blow you right up. Um, this is a decision that because no one died as a result, it's, it's something that I'll go, I'll go back to every now and then and think uh, should, how should I play that differently? And, and, and so you know, I, I guess, yeah, that was my confession that maybe made the wrong choice. Maybe I lack moral courage. Maybe I, maybe I don't have enough courage and that's, and if I, you know, D-Day and Iwo Jima and, I, and so uh, that's where I'm at with my confession. Well, I appreciate you sharing that for our listeners and I feel you, I've been there. You know, I've been there when all the Marines, this is fucking stupid. You know, senior Marines, this is stupid. And you're sitting there with the map or whatever else. You know, and you got to go out and you got to execute on it, you know, and it's like it's one thing to like talk about this stuff, but to really be in those moments, you know, to where like, oh, like it's just not so easy. Why is this? You know, why are we doing this? And like, you know, when you think about it, you watch the movies and you read the books about the officers that stood up, whatever. But it's a different situation when it's like you, you know, and so I've been there, man, and I feel you on that one. You know, one thing I would I do want to acknowledge is. You know, I've seen a lot of your content and, it, you know, that's when I realized that you were with the uh, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. And you guys had a really, you know, challenging deployment out there. And, you know, when I think back to my time, you know, as I was preparing to go out there, like even as you were telling your story, I was like, I wonder if this is one of the ARs I read, you know, because we would be sitting back in the States at our computers in Camp Lejeune reading about, you know, what you guys were going through um, out there in Afghanistan. So, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just because I think it's important that people remember these kind of units and stuff. If you wouldn't mind just enlighten our listeners on third uh, battalion, fifth Marines and uh, that deployment. Sure. Let me deflect for a moment and talk about one eight and uh, a Marine whom I love very dearly from one eight, uh, Robert Kelly. He was an assaultman in one eight in Fallujah uh, right there in Phantom Fury. And uh, he ended up commissioning as an officer and was in my IOC class. And then we both went to 3-5. He went to Lima. I went to Kilo. Uh, he was the standard of, of what a Marine officer is and should be to me to this day. And uh, he grew up in, in, in 1-8. And, um, yeah, we... 
I got I got to the unit in in 2009, and we were headed on a 31st MU, and the Marines had just gotten back from a 31st MU, and they had just missed the war. Right, all their seniors had done Fallujah in 04 and 08, and now they all were raised by seniors who had fought the war, and there all the junior Marines went to Okinawa. So you can imagine it was tough, and uh, all those first lieutenants were all salty because they also you know missed the war, and so our first lieutenants were kind of dicks uh because insecurities are loud and uh and so it was it was tough morale was very bad uh there's lots of investigations going on um and just like every other lieutenant that went before me you know i'm like we're gonna prepare for war we're gonna train for war and they're like yeah that's what our last lieutenant said and then we went and got drunk on okinawa you know and um and so it was uh, Christmas safety brief 09, got the word we're going to Afghanistan. And everything kind of flipped on a dime there. And and it was like, do you want to go to the show or not? Because you want to act like a jerk. I'm going to leave you on the bench. And every infantry Marine's biggest fear is not being there when all his friends have a moment to go in the arena and, and show who you are as a man. And... Uh, so my job actually got much easier once we went to knew we were going to combat. Um, and yeah, we deployed in September of 2010. Uh, staying in Afghanistan, it was the area that the British had more casualties than any other uh, area in Afghanistan that they had been in. And, and when we got there, the bases were, you know, I, when we flew in, I was reading three cups of tea thinking that I was going to, you know, win all the hearts and minds. And, um, that's that's what all the EMV and ITX was all about. Hearts, you know, coin, 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 and it was a conventional fight. The enemy was an enemy in defense, dug in with machine guns and obstacles, and uh, every day it was fighting your way out of the patrol base and trying to create some freedom of movement. And uh, there was 250 wounded on that the deployment. Many of those amputees, 25 killed in action. Uh, I had 19 casualties in my platoon, three killed in action. Uh, multiple officers from my company killed or injured. Uh, same thing with Lima Company. I mean, it was, uh, it was a hell of a fight, no doubt. Sorry to hear that. I will say a prayer for those Marines we lost. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sorry. I'm I'm grateful uh, for the opportunity, uh, to really, uh, do something that at the time was very meaningful and, uh, and to be really alive for a moment. Cause you're never so alive when you're so close to death. And, and we really got to live there. And, um, I think the men who did make the ultimate sacrifice believed in what they were doing. And if, and, you know, I, what I talk about when I when I give this example is um, Lance Corporal Benagua was my engineer, one of my engineers. And, and so Kilo Company had a squad of combat engineers attached to it. So 13. Twelve of the 13 Marines in that squad were killed or amputees. And that's because you were walking point as an engineer in a minefield with a metal detector and the IEDs were non-metallic. So you got a metal detector trying to pick up a mine that's non-metallic. 
and you're walking through a minefield. 12 of the 13 uh, killed um, or amputees in the Kilo Company AO. And I think of Lance Corporal Benagua, who turned 19 on that deployment, and the smile on his face every day as he walked point, never asking for anything less, never asking for somebody else to do it, 19 years old. And every time he put his foot down, he knew it might be his last, his last step. And that Marine went anyways. And if you told him ahead of time, because he knew, he, he knew it wasn't a matter of if, but when, and he still went anyways. And that's what makes me believe that uh, they would all go anyways. And so Robert Kelly, Matt Abate, Tevin Nguyen, Pedo, Tawny, you, they would all still go. And so to be part of something with such deep conviction uh, and, and to learn so much uh, about my, ourselves and uh, it's, it's only through the adversity and the struggle uh, that you, you kind of, you can make those refinements to your character. And uh, we had a lot of that. And uh, ultimately you move from a, a, a position of, uh, you, you know, you're angry, you're sad, and then uh, you're grateful. And you're grateful for those challenges because they, they shaped you into the man that you are. And you're grateful that you walked amongst such men for just a brief moment. And so uh, I'm not sorry. I'm grateful. And uh, I would go do it all again. We're in a situation like that and you know, you're in it, you know, at what point did you all as a unit recognize that this was no, this was no joke that you guys were really in it and there was no turning back. And the only way ahead was forward. And that could be three, four months, you know, just the idea that this deployment wasn't going away. Yeah, pretty quickly. I mean, within the first uh, two weeks, we had nine killed in action. Um, My best friend, the third platoon commander, his radio operator, James Belk, was killed. He was an urgent casualty. And, you know, there's a there's a scene in Gates of Fire um, where before the Spartans go into battle, they break a twig, which is a bracelet, which is essentially their dog tag. And they put half of it in a basket and they keep half that twig with them so that if they become so disfigured during the battle, people will have to match up the, 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 the bracelet and they'd say, oh, this is, that's how they identify who the casualty is. And when my buddy got hit and I thought he was this kind of larger than life, big six foot four, Georgia, John Wayne kind of guy, when he got hit, uh, I got back in the patrol base. I was out fighting when I heard his medevac going and um, I did the debrief with my platoon and, and I could feel it bubbling up this, this feeling of despair. And uh, the only place that was private, cause we shared, you know, just a mud hut. It was the detention facility and we had no one in there. So I went in there and I started crying and I, we, so 
with such severity that I I woke up prostrate on the ground just with mud caked on my face. I don't know how. And I and I went back to my room, my room, which was not my room, but my area in the hooch. And I had a in the bottom of my pack, I had packed a, a Snickers for what I predicted would be a rainy day. Uh, I didn't a little morale boost, you know. I didn't predict that to be in the first week uh, of combat, but there we were. It was the first week, and I needed to tap into my my morale. And I when I went inside my my main ruck because I'd been just using my assault pack. I hadn't been in my main ruck for a while, and uh, mice had to shit and pissed and chewed everything up in my assault pack. And I had no more resolve. You know, I had no more resiliency in me. And when I, when that happened, I became, you know, physically ill. And, uh, like for 24 hours, like feverish kind of in and out. And, um, but after that, you know, I was the Phoenix and I had broken that part of me, that human part of me, and I was now this animal and um and able to compartmentalize everything and and and, and i and and so you know it was so you're saying when did that it was it, it was this I separated from this feeling which had been building for the first two weeks was like it's a coin flip. At the rate that we're taking casualties, I mean, I had 19 casualties on between the 35. It really was a coin flip, whether you were leaving with your legs or your life. And uh, and so the, the you know the severity and the consequence of of what we were engaged in uh, was apparent pretty quick. But what I found to be the best remedy to combat that fear is to go out and get a W. And so what I found, uh, the units that kind of went internal or the, the, the units that became like not, uh, weren't combat, uh, effective, uh, they kind of isolated or went firm after taking, you know, some casualties. Whereas, um, when we got hit, I said, let's, let's go out and get, go right back and, you know, and let's bring some extra machine guns this time. And, 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 and I would, I would just think, you know, uh, I got 30 Marine infantrymen with rockets and machine guns and mortars, and we have close air support and artillery. Like we're the bad motherfuckers here. Like, uh, the Taliban should be like, Oh shit. First platoon just left the wire. And, and so, you know, I, I tried to keep that mentality with my Marines and, uh, and yeah, when you, when you, there were, the first couple of rounds, we were battered and bruised, but you know, the, the 10, 10 rounds, you know, we, once we kind of got our footing and said, oh, this is how they're fighting. This is how this AO works. We started just kicking ass. And, uh, and I think, um, and, and encouraged everybody and, so, yeah, that's. I always think about like the unit commanders, you know, particularly like you all as lieutenants, what it must have felt like for the company commander to send you all out there, knowing what you all were going into, you know, once things start popping off, 
but even as you as a platoon commander sending a squad leader out, what were those interpersonal relationships like at the commander level amongst each other, knowing what you all were asking of each other, both from the company commander to his lieutenants and the lieutenants to the squad leaders? Yeah, I don't have a whole lot of positive things to say about my company commander because he didn't really go out and I think he didn't really appreciate what was happening out there. Um, I think he was afraid and I think he projected that fear onto us. Uh, it wasn't about three months in my squad leaders finally came to me with a United front, which, you know, anytime that something like that happens, it's catches your attention. They said, sir, you need to stop going on every patrol. Uh, you make us feel like you don't trust us that you don't, we under like when in the first hundred days we were in a hundred firefights, you know, firefight every single patrol, but they, the patrol that there's less and less contact. And like, you don't, you know, by you being out there, it, it kind of gives us this feeling that, and, and, and we, we appreciated you there as an enabler to support us and lead us through some of those, but like, we've got it now. And, and, um, and so for me, the hardest thing is, is not being at upfront, you know, not accepting all the dangers and, and risks that I'd ask anybody to do. And, and coming back to Lance Corporal Banagua, uh, on the day that he was killed, um, we were patrolling into a village and we set up two support by fire positions on top of roofs. And uh, I, I'm i always with the lead element. So I took the first building and the next squad took the next next building. And Amula came and said, hey, there's an IED by my mosque. Can you get rid of it? And this was the first time that we had had a local tell us about an IED. So it was kind of exciting. And uh, so I sent a small team with Benagua back to to get rid of this IED. And I'm sitting on the roof and the Taliban isn't tracking that we're in this village. And they're about 300 meters out and two guys join up on their mopeds and do their ICOM radio checks. And I shot and killed one of them and my RO shot the other guy. And the, the one that my RO shot crawled away. And uh, the the other maneuver, the other support by fire element said, hey, we want to go follow the guy that crawled away while you wait here with Benago while he gets rid of this IED. And I said, all right, yeah, go ahead, follow it. Like, go, go check it out. And uh, they followed the blood trail to a compound. Um, then they lost it, but they went inside this compound and here's, you know, these are the these are the ones that I don't generally unpack. These are the ones that are in a sea bag that's too dangerous to open. And and they went inside this compound and they called me and they said, and they had a 0311 who was cross-trained on the Valen. So that, you know, this guy hardly knows what he's doing, but they're like, there's we're pretty sure there's IEDs everywhere. We're getting hits everywhere. What do you want us to do? I said, either sweep out like the way that you came in or just stand firm and I'll send Benagua once he's done with this one, I'll send him up to you. And so 
Benagua finishes with the one by the the Mula's mosque, and I stay in Overwatch to allow him to you know get, get up to their position. And so this is the one time that I am not forward. And uh, the company Gunny was on this patrol, and uh, which was a, a men- an immense mentor of mine, a man who I love very dearly. Um, and the only person that kept me sane that deployment. Um, and when I was in there for a couple minutes and then I see the yellow smoke come up and, uh, you know, feel so helpless that, and then, and then Gunny comes over the net and says, sir, uh, one routine, but head is blown off. Call third platoon, request a body bag so that the Marines don't have to carry him back like this because it won't be good to for morale for them to have to carry him back. Just get a body bag because third platoon's position wasn't far from where we were. So I call third platoon. They're on their way with the body bag. They came under fire as they approached the building, and the Marines inside went to run out to help them and stepped on another ID that they weren't tracking was in the building. And so now second plume of yellow smoke goes up and everybody's radios silent because the squad leader, the gunny, uh, the uh, team leader, all of them are all unconscious. And so I think everybody's dead in there. And, uh, and just absolutely horrible that I'm not there to do something that I, you know, so I jump off the roof and I start to run, you know, the 300 meters to, to where they were. And Gunny comes over the net and he was a drill instructor for a long time. So he had that, he still had that raspy voice and he's like, sir, I'm hit. And I was like, I know Gunny, I've already spun up the medevac. It's in route. And, uh, Sergeant Jason Pito um, lived, but then died in Bethesda uh, a couple days later from from infection. Uh, Gunny was medevaced, um, and so you know when you and to make waters even worse, that building had been used uh, as a patrol base by three seven, and because I was not disciplined in my battle tracking and I like I permitted them to to move and didn't notice what building they're in uh you know so when you talk about accepting that responsibility uh, I mean to me they're my sons and um It's what, what could be, you know, it's, 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 it's command is not easy. And, uh, the burden that comes along with that, it's, it's so rewarding. Uh, but, um, on your bad days, it's, it's devastating. You know, it's crazy before we go to these environments, how much we romanticize about war. You know, I can remember being, like I said, a lieutenant at IOC and TBS. Just want to go out there. Just want to get some, you know, 
But when you start losing Marines, it's a whole different um, situation. Yeah. And I appreciate you for being vulnerable and, you know, sharing these stories. I know it's not, um, it's not easy. And I appreciate you sharing it with our, with our listeners. So you have to be viewers. careful what you ask for. Right. Um, and I felt the same way. And if you didn't feel that way, you probably aren't in the right profession. Uh, but there's nothing romantic about war. It generally is very sorrowful, wasteful experience. But there is something that when it when you are called to be a warrior, in your heart, your profession, what your your professional calling, which is is the it's what's man's oldest calling, you know, oldest profession is and you know hunter warrior, you know, when that is your calling. And you're able to validate that calling under fire. There's something profound about that and intrinsically valuable. Um, you know, Michael Jordan had to play basketball, right? There's just there's just no other way that he had to play basketball. He had to be on a court in a game. And young men who have this warrior calling need to go into the arena and to, to know, and uh, not everybody's going to have that opportunity and that doesn't devalidate or invalidate, you know, their, their, what they suspect is their calling, but you just have to be careful what you ask for. And that, and that brings me to, to Matterhorn and Mellis in the beginning of the novel is at the, is at the, uh, is at the, is at the base. One second. Is at the base, and Melis is at the base at the beginning of the novel, and uh, he hasn't gone out yet. And he sees Vancouver coming off a helicopter and tattered camis, uh, bandana, and he's like, "I want to be." He, you know, feels it in his bones. I wish I was that Marine. I want to be that Marine so badly. Um. And by the end of the novel, he is that Marine. And at what cost? At what cost? What price did he pay to become that Marine? Lost his friends, lost his sanity, was sick, dysentery, filthy, rotten, betrayed. But he he got what he wanted, right? He was that Marine coming back to the, uh, the to the uh, to the LZ. Uh, but yeah, you got to be careful what you ask for. You know, you're a literary guy. And one thing I've come across is I've been older, right? I'm 34 now, but I've come to understand that the entire human experience has been written out yeah. already, right? History yeah. is cyclical, right? So we keep coming up against the same stuff it's over and over. And it's like, when are we going to learn there. our lessons? Yeah. You know? Even Smedley Butler, he told us war is a racket, you know? And so there's all this documentation out there about what war is, what it does to men, you know? And yet we still <laughs> drink the Kool-Aid and we, we chase it, you know? And for those that are not infantry, right? Or the infantry officers that didn't get to deploy, right? They feel some kind of way about it, right? Because that's the field of play. Nobody wants to practice for a game and never get in. And for us as infantrymen, we want to get out there and we want to get on the battlefield. 
And then, you know, I've tasted it. You've tasted it, you know, and it's, it is kind of surreal. That's why I think, you know, the many times the biggest peace advocates uh, are people who have had and, and been in combat, you know? So I'm, I'm a pastor and I'm preacher for peace these days uh, because I say, you don't, you don't want that. Use your words, figure out a way to talk it out because I'm telling you the slaughter of young men and the loss of human potential in the waste, there's gotta be a better way. Talk about it. And, and it is such a crime against humanity that our very first text 3,000 years ago, the Iliad and the Odyssey, I mean, they told us everything you need to know, betrayal, can't come home, problems with homecoming, you know, rage, anything you needed to know wasn't known. And then it's like, if there was any question in the modern age, World War I should have told everybody, gassing people, bayoneting people, living in rat-infested trenches, people drowning in their own feces. They go to shit and they have such bad dysentery that they fall and they drown in their own feces and their friends watch them, but their friends are also so weak from dysentery that they can't help them. So if you needed a modern reminder, there's less than, you know, about a hundred years ago, it's, and so it's not that it's not all there. It's just that we don't care to learn, uh, which is, again, like I think crime against humanity and, and mankind's greatest flaw is that we just, uh, we just refuse to learn or we're willfully ignorant. I want to come back to you as a lieutenant, but first I want to acknowledge what you just said about World War One, right? All those books, uh, The Hobbit, right? Uh, Chronicles of Narnia. What's the other ones, right? Like, and I think there was this underlying theme in all those books about war and like, why are we using technology to kill people at such a mass scale? <laughs> you know, what do we do? We roll into World War Two, you know? And then we got Vietnam and it's just like, God, you know, and the thing is, all these guys writing about this stuff, again, veterans have fought the good war, have been in there, you know, and now we put so much emphasis these days on the veteran narrative, you know, we put them on TV, right? And we did it, but it's almost like, damn, are we like so different than before? You know, it's like the vets of the old days, we get on TV and be like, war is bad. War is a racket. We get on TV now and we're like, fucking send us over there. I'll go right now. Yeah, uh, that false bravado, um, it's, it's not, it's, it's because, you know, to me, everything centralizes on the 18 year old PFC and Lance Corporal and they're poor and they came from a rural background or they came from the inner city background and, you know, it's they're going to do the dying. And I think if my daughter was an 18-year-old PFC, would I want her to go die for Taiwan? Would I want her to go die? The answer is resoundingly negative. If, in fact, someone landed on our shores, I think there are some things that are worth, worth fighting and dying for. 
And if someone was to come to the home front and try to say, your home is now my home, well, we're going to die over that, right? We're going to, but for me to say, uh, you know, you've got to have a Western Democratic former government in Helmand Province and a bunch of guys and gals to to die uh, over that, I think, man. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, the Veterans perpetuate uh, the veteran as victim narrative where uh, they amass social currency by competing in the victim Olympics. Uh, And then veterans uh, on the other spectrum uh, use kind of this belligerent. And it's, it's usually guys who, right. It's it's guys who are out, you know, they're like, let's go kick their ass. It's like, we're not going to go kick their ass. Like you're not in anymore. (laughs) Like I'm going to take a bunch of kids to go, you know, and so, uh, and, and and so it's that's part of what you're doing. It's part of what Dead Reckoning is doing. It's part of what I do. Is is I try to elevate the narrative around veterans, around combat. To say that we're not damaged and broken. We're warriors, and we're contributing, uh, and we'll continue to uh, contribute uh, to the society. What what with what you're doing with your podcast, with what you're doing with your studies, with what you're doing with your business, right? Uh, we we are not. We have wounds, right? I've been physically wounded. I have some invisible wounds. I'm not the sum of my wounds. I'm not defined by my wounds. They tell stories, and that story is not of a victim. It's of a warrior. Uh, and I'll continue to battle. Um, and 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 so I, I think uh, we've, we've allowed ourselves to narrowly define ourselves either by our wounds or by a false bravado, and, and it's and um, I'm grateful for a, a platform like this where we're, we're trying to talk uh, in, a, in a much more sincere and genuine way about veterans and combat and, and all that. You know, one thing I appreciate about this platform, even this episode, is I call it free flowing thought leadership. You know, a lot of times it's like, oh, we got this linear narrative, but that's not how it works, right? Sometimes stuff just kind of gets out. And I'm thinking and we're processing literally as we're talking, kind of like the written word. And one of the things just kind of doing this, what you just said is, isn't that why this is so important? Like this is the generation now, you know, like us writing, us talking about it, right? Sledge is gone, you know, Uh, Butler's gone, you know? So who's replacing these kind of narratives? Who's stepping up and writing the human experience from the veteran perspective, you know? And, you know, like you said, we like, the Dead Reckoning Collective, salute to those guys. But if not, stuff just gets so fucking political. And it's like, where is the human in it? You know, I don't care who you are, right? Like, and and I know what I was going to ask you. And I, w- I would love your honest opinion on this. As somebody that has really been in the throes of combat. You know, one of the reasons I think we're so war hungry is because we haven't experienced the Vietnam level of casualties. You know, our veterans, Right. Like, we didn't have to worry about somebody walking into our foxhole and slicing our throat in the middle of the night, right? It was bad, but we didn't have that. We sure as hell didn't have the tanks on the battlefields and the trenches. And part of me wonders, is that why we still think this, like, uh, you know, send us back over there now? Yeah, I I wrote the the Ford for War is a Racket, uh, Dead Reckoning, uh, just republished it. And... I, I think um, war costs so much to so few, 
And until we can make war uh, be felt by the other 99%, you'll, you'll continue to find people who at the drop of a hat uh, would like to go get in the next skirmish. And I remember when I was deployed uh, to Australia as a company commander, and I mean, part of the reason we're there is to, if anything happens in the Pacific, right? We're four, four deployed infantry battalion in the Pacific, so that if Korea or China, and Korea had launched a, a missile over Japan, northern Japan, and all these politicians are on TV saying, that's it. We need to, we need to, and I, and in the media, we need to, and no more pushing over. And yeah, generals getting on Fox and CNN saying that that's the, that's it. I'm like, who is we? Because I'm looking at these kids. We're all going to be dead. We're going to be the first ones in the Korea and we for sure will be dead. Your life isn't going to change. Your Amazon Prime deliveries are still going to come in two days. Your Wi-Fi signal is still going to be strong. Your Grubhub is still going to show up. Your Netflix is still going to uh, stream. You know, there there's not we uh, in, in this in this conversation. There's us, and then the other ninety nine percent, which ultimately, I am grateful that a small percentage of people are able to bear that burden because people like to say this in a critical lens. America's uh, not at war. America's at the the mall. Marines are at war. And I think, good. I want my mom, I want my daughter and my wife not to be at war. I want, that's why I'm here. That's why I raise my hand is so that they could enjoy the freedoms and liberties. So in one sense, that's good that America's at the mall. Uh, but in another sense, when you have an all-volunteer force where it is oh, and it's, it's such limited impact, you get people a lot more cavalier uh, and uh, ready to, to, to get after it because, again, there's no – and until we uh, have a more universal – suffering uh across the the masses you know it's it's it would be really easy to end all future war rhetoric if you said uh it's a full draft there are no waivers everybody from 16 to 50 men women uh we're turning off the wi-fi there is no more amazon there is no more what's the you know uh Ted Lasso show, whatever's that show that everybody likes that he's talking about, right? That shows there's no shows. Uh, there's no pizza delivery. Everybody pays a tax. The war will be paid for in full. There's no going in. There's no passing this debt to my children and my grandchildren, and my grandchildren, because we're out doing uh, mission creep throughout the Middle East. Uh, I'm not passing that debt. We're going to pay for the war in full with a war tax. So everybody's salary, 25% to the war effort. You know, people would say, no fucking way. Too expensive, not worth it. Not, I don't want to, that would cause me to actually sacrifice. Now think of the average soldier or Marine in Vietnam, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, eating shit food, 
pooping in a fucking bag, dirt for breakfast, dirt for lunch, under fire, hot, cold, wet. And it's like, it's like, oh, like, because that sacrifice and that suffering is so limited. And now you say, okay, you can't have, you can't have Wi-Fi. I'd be like, I can't have Wi-Fi. Like I wouldn't, but like, you would still be happy to send somebody to go lose their life. Uh, but if, if it would came to you having to have a mild inconvenience, you'd say, no, 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 actually, actually on second thought, it's not worth it. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think, um, there's, you know, it's, it's a quote like, uh, old men make wars and, and young men fight them. Right. And, and until, uh, the people who make the wars or advocate for the wars are actually the ones that have to go fight and die for them or have to at least have some kind of sacrifice or suffering, people will be too always too happy to uh, send others. We're it, man. I'm just like, I'm talking to you. I feel like we're kindred spirits already, you know? And you, you, it's interesting how as amazing, as big as the world is, how we kind of start gravitating towards each other, right? Like I've kind of been following you. I've been following the Dead Reckoning guys. I was on their podcast when I first quit my job like like four years ago, which is crazy. So when I'm publishing this book, who do you think I hit up? I was like, hey, I want to go with you guys for this Native Confessions of a Native Son book. So I'm working on making that happen. But again, I think, you know, literature isn't like the sexiest thing in the world, right? Nobody really talks about that, right? Writing and publishing. And yet, like, here we are, you know? And what are your plans with your writing? Like, as you start to look towards the future, I know, like, where did that come from, right? Where did you become such a prolific writer and really embrace this kind of personality sure. and mindset? You know, uh, I read a couple books a year starting in co right in college. I read Nathaniel Fix. We talked about this already, you know, one bullet away, right? Uh, and then when I was checking into Kilo 3.5, I read E.B. Sledge with the old breed. And, but I, I was largely reading nonfiction books uh, about leaders or war or history, which I think there's a ton of value in that. But I wasn't reading much fiction. I read a little bit, Fields of Fire. Um, I, was my, I was deployed to Australia and I was hanging out with a group of Australians and uh guys and gals and and they would, were having these kind of they're they're traveling they're and they were having these like, esoteric conversations about literature and and i thought you know when you were 18 you were in ap literature and you were more cultured more well-read more well-rounded as a senior in high school and now you're you know 30 years old and you can't talk about the last book that you read that wasn't troop leading steps, you know, uh, open up the aperture. And so I Googled great works of fiction <laughs> and I picked the first book that came out, uh, which was Charles Dick's, Dickens, Great Expectations. And I read that and I was like, I remember why I love literature so much. And um, at the same time, a message came out and said the Marine Corps needs someone to teach English at the Naval Academy. And I thought, well, I just read this book. Uh, that must be me. Not taking into consideration that I uh, did terribly in English in college, not because 
it was too difficult, but because I didn't apply myself in college, I wasn't an English major in college. I had read one book uh, of literature, of fiction, you know, and, and but I'm I'm a guy who just shoots a shot, right? And so I put my name in the hat. Next thing I know, I'm at uh, Georgetown's graduate program, getting an MA in English. And I show basically like I showed up to the MLB all-star game and Randy Johnson's throwing hundred mile power heaters and I should be out with T-ball league. And uh, I realized I didn't even actually know how to read until I, I took a, a course, um, Asian American literature by professor. So, and we would pick one sentence two two sentences and for three hours kind of unpack what that meant and why that was significant and i'm so marine that i'm like problem answer push and it's like no there's more to this text and because you got to be able to put on different lenses and different glasses and then you see it from this way and then you can start to see it from this perspective and you're like an archaeologist and you start to excavate. And every time you dig a little deeper, you find something, you make a new discovery into this text. And so she's the one that gave me these glasses to be able to see things. And she gave me the tools to be able to excavate, you know, into this literature. And I was so embarrassed that I'm, you know, 32. And I finally feel like I, now I actually know how to read. I, I went this, I went. And so then I start watching, I was watching a, a that show about, uh, the Ozarks. I started watching the Ozarks. And once you know how to read, you can read anything. And so I start to watch the show and I'm like, I'm watching the show with my wife and I'm like, Oh, red truck. That's, that means. And then like, and like, she's like, at first she was impressed. She's like, how do you, can you see all these things? And do you know how everything's going to happen? And I'm like, Oh, because like the author, the writer didn't just write that for like that. There's obviously got to be more meaning into that. And when you start and, and and like at first she was impressed and then she was like annoyed, like, okay, I don't care to shut up, you know, I'm just trying to watch the show. But once you can start to, you know, once you, once you have those eyes uh, and, and I was in this super uncomfortable situation where I'm a 33 year old married white guy and I'm with all these 22 year olds who are from a very diverse background. I'm taking diverse literature courses and Asian American literature and Middle Eastern this. And, uh, and, and so I'm just so out of my element that I was drowning. But uh, as I learned to swim by swallowing a lot of water and, uh, and, 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 and working through the fire, you know, you only get stronger through that getting outside. And I was so far outside my comfort zone. And everybody would be like, wanted me to be the veteran bro vet and be like, oh, just tell these kids how it really is. And I'm like, we're studying Shakespeare's Hamlet. Like, what am I going to be like? Well, in Afghanistan, Hamlet, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, like right. these people are Shakespeare scholars. They've been studying it for the last, you know, uh, they're poets. And, and so um, I didn't you know, I didn't really get into literature until I started that graduate program. And then of course I was forced to write. Uh, and I found that for 10 years, I think it's because largely because of cowardice that I lacked the moral courage to investigate or interrogate 
why I did some things the way I did, why I, why I was thinking something, you know, thoughts, feelings, and actions. I started to finally go to the therapy and my therapist, my therapist says would always challenge me to think about my thoughts. Like, where does this thought come from? How is it making you feel? And then how do you act? Like what physically, how do you act when that, and, and it's easy when you, cause I'm an active duty Marine still, you know, so I'm always just burying whatever. And I'm, and because I can stay externally focused because I got Marines to worry about, I got a mission to make. And so I'm always say, Oh, I'm doing this destructive thing. I have this destructive tendency, this, this shitty behavior rather than figure out where it's coming from or why I feel that way. I'm like, Oh, I got to, I got Marines. I got to worry about the Marines. And, you know, and, and, and so to me, it was really a crutch or an excuse. Uh, but then when you're a graduate student and your only job is to think and read and write, I finally had to start to work through some of these experiences. And, and I found uh, that it was through writing, I was able to start to make meaning of my experience and, and um, really kind of explore the chaos and it was through writing that I got to start to bring some, uh, you know, I had all this entropy and I was able to start bringing some homeostasis and some harmony back to my life through writing. And, 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 uh, and then, it, so that's really when my writing journey, uh, started and, 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 and I'm, and I became convicted to elevate the narrative around veterans in combat. And so I, I started to study veteran narratives and, literature and film. And I, I said, there's got to be a better way to tell our story than just being broken, damaged, entitled, time bomb. How can we, how can we reimagine the veteran narrative and elevate it? And I said, well, you better go walk point. And so I started going to do open mic nights. I would do open mic nights for, for storytelling. And, uh, and then I started my page kill zone as a byproduct of my capstone at Georgetown, where I said, resiliency, how do you stay out of the kill zone? How do you, how do you stay out of that ambush? How, how, how when Mike, that, that ambush is coming, the tragedy is coming. Mike Tyson's going to get his punch in, you know, but how can you be more resilient so that when you, when that tragedy arrives, that you aren't just knocked out, knocked flat, it's coming, the cancer, the infidelity, the divorce, the it's, it's coming to us all. Um, but we've got to be able to, to, to get our hands up and then, okay, we've been hit and we're hurt. Well, how do we start to recover? Because it seems like so many veterans are still on the X and they're still just bleeding. And maybe that's because we only teach veterans how to treat physical wounds. We know how to put on tourniquets. We know how to, to do a, a needle decompression, but we don't know how how to check a routine, a priority or urgent casualty on the inside. We don't know how to get to uh, buddy aid, uh, self-aid, buddy aid or corman aid when we got something going on, on the inside. And so how, and, and until you identify where you're hurt, you can't start to treat it, right? And so let's let's figure out how we can get veterans off the X. And that's kind of why it came up with the kill zone, like, because you're in the kill zone and, and, and it's gonna, and so, uh, yeah, that's where I've been writing. And, um, and, and, and ultimately, what I'm so grateful for literature, and this is where we kind of talked about before we started the recording, and, and, and what I'm so grateful for what literature and writing has done to me is to help, it's helped me understand 
the human experience. It's helped me understand humanity. And, you know, you talked about how we're so polarized and so caustic to one another. And really, I think literature, you, you say, like, it might be boring or something. I can't remember how you framed it. But literature is, the, is really uh, the ticket to getting people to understand other experiences. I can't understand what it's like to be black in America. I can't understand what it would have been like to be a black Marine in Vietnam. But literature can give you an idea. Literature can help you get some empathy. I'm never going to know exactly your experience, but I can at least through reading get an insight to it. And it and it makes and it, and it, and it makes me want to have a dialogue about it. It makes me want to learn more about it rather than you know this this caustic, hostile like where we're at today, uh, we, you know, there's a great scene in, in where, where Mellis wants to learn the handshake uh, that the, that the brothers are doing. And, and they're like, you know, they, it's just like, it's, I can't teach you because it's not, it's not the motions. It's like, it's the experience that we've, we had that makes us be able to have this handshake. And, 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 and it's such a powerful kind of moment there. And, uh, and so I, I think, yeah, literature, if you want to understand the human experience, if you want to understand, if you want to be able to see the world from different perspectives, it'll give you wings, right? It'll take you anywhere you want and you can, and you can start to have an appreciation and you can start to build some empathy. And that to me is the ultimate value of literature. Literature requires depth. That's what it is. I think now everybody wants snackable content, memes. snackable news, snackable this, yeah. memes, Instagram, TikTok videos. But if you really want to understand someone's experience, right, you can't just, you can't read Hillbilly Elegy while like, you know, a five minute car or something stupid. You know, you go in there and you're like, man, I've never been to West Virginia, but like, I feel like I understand where he's coming from. You know, and one of the things I've said on this platform repeatedly is, Black America's George Floyd is the drunk white uncle, you know, the one that can't get his feet underneath them, bounces from job to job, you know, got a sketchy past in and out of jail or whatever, you know, but you get upset when black America get upset. How would you feel if your black uncle got choked out, regardless of how belligerent and stuff he was? But when we lack that depth and that willingness to understand, then we get this polarization and stuff that we find ourselves in. And interesting about you is until this interview, I didn't know that like you had just kind of got reintroduced to literature because it seems like you really immersed yourself in the space. Right. You know, you're doing the workshops. Right. You've got the pipe. You know, I'm thinking just like, oh, so I'm like, oh, this guy's probably been written writing since forever. But it's but I think that's also the way to do it is to really throw yourself in these spaces and learn. You know, I was very fortunate that it was my profession. I was paid to study literature and then I was paid to teach literature and teach composition. So, you know, I, I'm not, it's not lost on me. What a incredible opportunity that, uh, that was to, to go study and then to teach at the Naval Academy. And I think the seeds were there, you know, again, when I, when I was young, my, my mom, she just called cop. And so didn't see her most of the day, but, um, she'd, make a can of spaghettios, you know, for dinner, pretty 
broke. And, uh, and, and so, but after dinner, uh, each night, you know, from when I was eight years old to 12 or whatever, we would read each night. And, and she read to me all seven of the Chronicles of Narnia, the Hobbit and the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. And so like, I loved, like I said, I loved literature, uh, for a long time. Um, I just forgot about it. And then, uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm, and, 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 and I've been, I'm four year academic now, Georgetown, two years teaching. And now I'm at, at a college again, getting another graduate degree. So I've been very, very fortunate that, uh, writing and, and reading and thinking, uh, it's, it's, it's been my job and, uh, it's, it's caused an immense amount of growth and, and opened up greater opportunities like this conversation. So I'm very thankful. That's my goal. That's my entrepreneurial goal, writing, reading, and thinking. I'm practicing the podcast. I've done the writing classes. I'm in the writing class now. I write uh, every day, you know, and I write in public, typically on LinkedIn um, currently, but also right behind the scenes. Are you writing in hand? Do you do handwritten or do you type? I do a lot of notes. And so um, if you look at my iPhone, my notes, it's just because like that idea will come to me and I'll just have to start jamming it out. And so um, I think a lot of my writing is in notes. I like writing in Google Docs uh, because it's wherever I go, I can pull it up. And so I've got a lot of Google Docs. uh, but I mean, I, I value when I was on deployment, I mean, most of my writing was all in, uh, I, I kept journals while I was deployed and, th- and those were always handwritten. And, um, so I, I, value, but I like it to be transferable to a medium. Uh, and it's easier when I, uh, either take notes or, or write in a Google doc. One th- one thing I struggle with. I would love your feedback on this is I love the Peter Druckers of the world, the Jim Collins, this is more business literature, but it's just the prolific way in which they've introduced themselves to the world. They were thought leaders before thought leader was a word and they became a thought leader by publishing lots of books on subjects. So boom, you're an expert. But one thing is, as I'm kind of doing this uphill battle of learning how to write, you know, but what if the podcast is my pen and paper, you know, what if this is that for me yeah i mean humans in in oral stories that's like it's our longest way of kind of communicating uh and using stories and so i i think i i prefer talking i prefer making a video i prefer doing a a podcast because Writing is so challenging uh, and I'm so critical of my writing that I just won't write or, you know, and, and so like it's, I, I think there's, I, I probably have value uh, in telling some stories like, we, like the stories that I told maybe two or three stories to write those stories would be excruciating for me, but we can, I can relay them because I'm not worried about the, is this the passive voice? How's the punctuation here? Semicolon, not a semicolon. Uh, and, and so I don't think, I, 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 I think you might think of the podcast as like, uh, a, we might be thinking of it as like a, a, an emerging kind of medium, 
for storytelling. But I, I would say like it's actually taps back into our oldest uh, version of, of of how we've you know communicated and, and done our art and. You know what's funny though, right? The challenge of writing it, like you said, when I do monologue podcasts, y'all, it is fucking hard, you know? And I run a podcast production company and I have monologue shows and every time I step up to go solo, it's stopping on, stopping on, you know? So, but it's just, it's, I love this medium, right? And I just think there's something so prolific about us having these kind of conversations. You know, you're from Chicago. I'm in Newark. Right. We had never met in person before, but we're, this is an intimate conversation. You know, we talked about some very personal stuff. And so to be able to have these platforms and then for us as veterans, as an Americans, you know, damn, people will look back up and be like, oh, pass all the bullshit. You know, what were people thinking? Then they come across something like this and they're like, oh, wow. You know, these guys were going deep. And I'll tell you, I got my master's in American studies from Rutgers Newark. That's when I got introduced to American literature beyond the surface level. And one of the classes I had to take was uh, for my uh, research seminar was uh, sexuality and sexual politics. As a new Marine, I had just got out after a year. I, t I called the program director. I was like, yeah. take me out of this. He's like, no, Mike, I think you'll understand. I'm looking at the curriculum, gay yeah. New York. I was like, I can't do it, sir. I can't do it. I'm so exactly. glad I did because it challenged my perception of thinking and it introduced me to a human experience, American experience that I would have never learned about had I took that class. The humanities, while are not popular these days because everyone wants a STEM degree or a, a engineering and a business, the, knowing about the human experience is never going out of style, you know? And so while it's, it's, it's kind of judged and it, it's kind of looked down upon, uh, Understanding the human experience that and and like you said, that that sexuality class, there's there's so much people would say, like, oh, there's so much value in that. And and and, and because it expanded your mind, right? And it, it taught you new ways to think about subjects. And uh I'm a, I'm obviously a big advocate of of the humanities, of 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 our history, English, philosophy, um, that type of stuff. So Well, Tom, I feel like I've been taking a lot of your time, man. You know, I'm stealing his time from his wife and family. But I will tell you this. I want to get you back on the pod for yeah. Matterhorn. I don't care if we got to clear the calendar or whatever. I've released a five-episode podcast on war. Not saying you got to do five hours. But I would love to get you back for to talk about Matterhorn. Before we do that, let us know what the future looks like for you from a literature perspective or whatever. And then also um, let us know how we can support you because I know you got this amazing book that uh, is coming out, right? So uh, what does the future look like? Um, you know, I, I, again, I, I do most of my writing, talking, thinking uh, on, on, on Killzone on Instagram. Um, I'm very involved with a nonprofit that I founded, Patrol Base Abate, uh, which even... You go ahead, go ahead yeah. and expand so on I, that. I mean, that's important for our listeners. Uh, in 2020, I had three Marines commit suicide. And as I looked into the, the veteran suicide problem, I found that um, the VA reports kept saying that the leading proximal cause of veteran suicide are feelings of disconnectedness and isolation. 
Uh, and so I started, and, and also what I was surprised that the VA suicide reports said that non-combat veterans are twice as likely to commit suicide as combat veterans. And so I said, okay, well, what is out there getting all veterans in community, that tribe, that purpose? And what I found uh, was about 99% of the resources are allocated to about 1% of the population, our special forces and our wounded. And to me, it made a lot of sense that that's the main effort, but it seems like we started and stopped there and it doesn't match the problem where the problem is saying that 80% of veterans who commit suicide didn't go to combat. So why are we allocating all and everything else was also just so reactive. You can have this resource after you almost killed yourself. You can have this resource after you OD'd. And I said, let's get left a bang. Let's take a preactive approach that we're encouraging active duty people to join us. Uh, veterans who've been out for five minutes or 15 years, National Guard, uh, reservists, doesn't matter. The only prerequisite is service. And so where everybody else wants you to narrowly define yourself as a disabled veteran, as a PTSD, as a combat wounded, we're just saying you served, you're in not worried about all that other stuff. If you served, I understand that you have a need for tribe and purpose, and we're going to provide it here. So we went and got 350 acres in Montana. We do retreats uh, out there all summer. And then uh, we've got 50 local chapters so that that you can stay connected with that tribe and, and, and be purposeful any, any time. And, and so we talked about this veteran narratives. And so every weekend around the country, Patrol Base Abate is out cleaning up the beaches in SoCal, going to the soup kitchens in Baltimore, right? And it's a challenge in the narrative that veterans, no veterans are not damaged, broken, entitled. Veterans are men and women of character and of service, and we're still serving, and we're in your communities meeting the greatest needs, and we don't need your handouts. We actually are going to continue to be productive members of society, and so that's why the, the local chapters do that. They prov- they they give you that opportunity to, to serve again, and and you do that in community uh, with with other veterans. And so, uh, and 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 getting these active duty in our ranks, it's so that when you go through that identity crisis, which we all will go through, which transition, you've already got a built-in tribe, you know. And so, uh, I named it after my one of my snipers, Matt Abate, Navy Cross recipient. And so, um. That it's 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 saving lives is is all I can, I can say and uh, and it's it's so I'm I'm very uh, fortunate to be very busy with that but uh, I'm I'm happy to do that so patrol base abate pb abate on Instagram pbabate.org um, I yeah I'm in the Ford I wrote the Ford for Wars of Racket uh, for Dead Reckoning um, and I'm doing some of my own writing and so may, maybe there'll be a book uh, we'll see but um, yeah I I'm 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 in this graduate program uh, the most likely course of action is that I go back to the fleet and I serve as an executive officer in an infantry battalion and then go on to be a battalion commander and uh, but again I'm always open. To shooting my shot and so uh we'll see uh where we're so uh yeah tbd i think still writing we're not we're not at the conclusion well well i appreciate you for spending this time with me and my listeners again th- these conversations are great because i feel like you know we probably have conversations we don't even have with people close to us you know you jump on here and you just start going there and you went there so man it's great i'll be sure to include a link in the show notes for Patrol Base Abate, 
as well as uh, War is a Racket. I already bought my copy of the book and I got the T-shirt. So I did the plus package. But uh, it was great having you on here, man. And uh, wish you nothing but the much success and look forward to getting you back to talk yeah. about Matterhorn. And for my listeners, in the meantime, go out and get Matterhorn. So you understand a lot of the stuff that we talked about with regards to the show. And I want to encourage you to listen to the audio book. If you can listen to the audio book of Matterhorn and not shed a tear, you're a different type of person. I promise you. Uh, but make sure you also subscribe to the newsletter for Confessions of a Native Son at the link in the show notes and share this podcast with others in your network who you feel can identify with this subject matter. I appreciate you all for tuning in. And until next time, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice man I love your brother black man and chase our trees black